Today's podcast is one in the series exploring the takeover of United. If you remember, we spoke to Andy Green about finances. We spoke to Newcastle United against sports washing about the Saudi takeover um, and Nicholas McGinn from Fair Square about potential Qatari takeover. And today, I'm very pleased to have Chris Duncan from Client Earth, which is an organization that takes a quite an activist view on environmental issues. Chris, welcome to the pod. Yeah, great to be here. And thanks for having me on. Yeah, pleasure. I have to say I was kind of interested in the approach that Client Earth takes to environmental issues. A little bit different than um, exploding orange smoke bombs at the snooker. Anyway, (laughs) tell us about the organization and, and yourself. I think you've been there for a few years now. Yeah, that's right. We we tend not to explode things generally. The organization, it's a charity and we uh, we use the law. That's our starting point for trying to tackle climate and, and nature issues. So lots of lawyers who are working with us who yeah tend to be uh, balking slightly at the idea of, of letting off any kinds of smoke bombs or anything like that. Yeah, we do focus on using the law and we tend to do that in a couple of ways. One is to try and bring in better policy and regulation. So making sure that we have the the laws, the rules that will govern our ability to tackle the climate crisis, to protect nature. And that's important in and of itself, but also it's important for people because basically we all rely on having a healthy planet and a natural world that can sustain us all. So so we use the law, we do that as I say, to have better laws, better regulations, but we also use legal action. So we do take litigation, court cases, and we do that against corporate uh, actors, so companies, and also governments, making sure that they're abiding by the laws, either they've written themselves or that any company is, is governed by. Um, so right. yeah, and I've been with the organization five years. I should say I'm not a lawyer. I work with plenty of them, and there's <laughs> lots of smart legal minds looking at a whole range of, of issues. And we're based out of, out of London, where I am today, but also working across Asia, Europe, America, and, and Africa, and it's a team of about 300 people. Okay, quite a substantial organization then. And you are, since this is a football podcast, everyone keeps telling me, Ed, stop talking about politics. But unfortunately, the, the intersection between football and politics is quite tight, but you're a Leighton Orient fan. Uh, congrats on the uh, successful season for you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely fantastic. And I was um, I was at the ground, I'm, I'm a season ticket holder, so was celebrating away our, our promotion into the first division, which is fantastic because we've had a fairly rocky ride with a, yeah. with a not great owner who took us from the playoffs to the champions uh, championship right down into the National League, but have clawed our way back into the, the first division. So looking forward to uh, to being back at Brisbane Road in, in August time. Nice. Yeah, so I'll, as we know at United, ownership is quite fundamental to the success or otherwise of a football club. And, and before we get an independent regulator, if, when that actually comes in, good ownership really does matter a lot anyway back back to client earth so the approach is legal and you you take uh, you take court cases how is that funded do you it's a, you said it's a charity so I, I presume it's philanthropic funders who are predominantly funding the organization yeah it's it's a mix so we have some fantastic individual supporters who give online it might be five or ten quid a month right through to some bigger philanthropic foundations and individuals who give us a little bit more we're also lucky we have some interesting supporters. So Coldplay actually have been supporters of ours since pretty much day one. For those of you who know Brian Eno, he's, he's, mm-hmm. he's one of our trustees. So we have this kind of interesting mix right. of, uh, of lawyers, actually, and, and people working in the culture and music space. Um, interesting. But yeah, it's, uh, it's all philanthropic and, and individual giving that supports our work. 
And and what's the sort of thought process behind taking action? I mean, you've got some stuff up on your website that's public now about the court case in Belgium against Ineos and their plastics plant. So how do you prioritize what what is going to become a case for you to take on or not? Yeah, it's a really good question. And we try and focus on what we call systemic change. So things that we can have, we think can have a kind of big impact across the systems that are, are driving climate change and, and damage to the natural world. And it's one of the great things about using the law. And I say this again, as someone who, who isn't a lawyer, but has come to, to love lawyers and love working with the law, because it gives you the power to, to be able to hold governments and, and companies to account, which sometimes that can be with a couple of lawyers working on a case. So it gives you pretty incredible access to, to the courts and to justice and to being able to, to make sure that laws are enforced. Equally, if you can write really good laws and really good policies, they apply to everybody. Um, and right. so long as they're enforced, then you're in a pretty good space. So, you know, it's important to have people campaigning and raising the profile of issues, but we think that the law is a really powerful way, particularly to hold people to account. And, and it's something we do, as I say, in, in a number of places around the world. Um, so, and in terms so you're of, a company of Erin Brockovich's, basically. Something like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Did you know that uh, Julia Roberts is a Manchester United fan? I didn't know that. I didn't. Oh, yes. Well, and it really, it, it really winds Manchester City fans up, so I thought I'd mention it again <laughs> for, the, for the few that bother to tune into this, this podcast. It's as good a reason as any. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, I mean, no, I think that's important. What, what's your... Um, What's your sort of geographical scope then? Are you UK, Europe? Do you focus on companies yeah, in the so States as we, well? We were founded out of the UK, so started working here and then have been working a lot in the EU. We were founded in 2007, so this is this year 16. I'm trying to do my mm -hmm. maths there. So we started in the UK, started then to work in Brussels. Obviously, as I was talking about, if you can get good regulation in place and good law in place, then you can have pretty wide impact. Yeah. If you can do that in Brussels, then you're looking at what was previously 28, yeah. 27 countries. So yeah. it's great in terms of, of being able to bring those kinds of laws in. So working in the EU, we do work in some areas that have historically had really high carbon emissions or are kind of behind on transitioning away from fossil fuels. So we've done a lot of work in Poland and around Central Eastern Europe, which has traditionally been very heavily reliant on coal for its power, which is like one of the most carbon intensive ways of producing power. We also worked um, for a number of years in, in Africa, actually supporting local communities to prevent deforestation. So helping right. them use the law, oddly. I mean, you think it was something that only exists in, in courtrooms but actually, if you can work with local communities and even help them to write good contracts with, with logging companies, oddly enough, then you can make sure that they're in charge of managing um, okay. forests and, and that ends up with a better outcome. In the US, we've not long been working there, but looking at actually how corporates act and how companies yeah. are looking at what we call climate risk. So basically, there's, there's risk coming out of climate change. It might be because the weather is changing and you're liable to floods or that there's going to be new regulation coming in and you're not accounting for that. So we're working with corporates and making sure that they are looking at what a changing world is going to do to their business and equally working with in a more kind of supportive way, actually in, in Asia around Singapore, helping advise companies on what they need to be doing to, to transition into a world that's changing and, and that's going to take us to, to net zero. Okay. 
And and have you got any examples of sort of change that has been enacted in the the sixteen years of of the organisation? Yeah, well, the one I would naturally spring to because it's in mind when I've been thinking about this podcast is around greenwashing. Actually, so we take a number of actions against companies for for greenwashing. Just to be clear, of what that is, it's when a company is presenting itself generally through advertising or sponsorship or public announcements as more environmentally friendly or climate friendly than it than it really is. So we've taken action against BP actually over some of their advertising. They did this fantastic campaign that talked all about the, the way they were powering the transition to a greener future and fantastic images of people in front of windmills and, and that kind of thing. The reality is that about two or three or 4% of their spend is actually on renewable energy. The rest is all on, on fossil fuels. Right. So that's basically misleading advertising. So we are able to, to get them to withdraw those adverts. We've been able to prevent the construction of a new coal-fired power plant in Poland, which would have been a huge contributor to climate change and also would have been an investment for a company that would have lost money. It's a very strange situation where we were taking action against the company to stop them investing in something and we won and their share price actually went up because it wasn't a good long-term investment for them. Right. So right. it's really interesting seeing the kind of the impact you can have with with a strong legal case and and how relatively quickly that can happen I say relatively quickly the courts don't always move at the pace we would want but um you can affect change in a pretty uh, substantial way right which which comes to ineos i mean i think it'd be good to to kind of explain what the company is because it's it's actually a conglomerate of a whole bunch of different petrochemicals type companies across different geographies. So let, let's talk a little bit about Ineos, the company, and then we can talk about your uh, interactions with them. Yeah, really interesting company, actually. And I think a lot of people won't know who Ineos are. A lot of people now know who Ineos are because of this process. Yeah, And then there'll be a bunch of people who know Ineos because they've seen their name on cycling jerseys or on the side of like F1 cars and things like yeah. that. But they are a petrochemicals company. And what does that mean? Well, it means that they're producing products that are based on on gas and oil, which are fossil fuels. They're owned by Sir Jim Ratcliffe. They they will say they produce about $65 million, a billion dollars, sorry, worth of income each year. They are privately owned by Sir Jim Ratcliffe, who's, I think, as of last week, the UK's second richest individual. So they're Oh no, he's he slipped to second. <laughs> he's he's still doing okay, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it's as I say, super interesting company. And petrochemicals, as I say, come from fossil fuels basically. And they end up in, in lots of uses. So from fertilizers to things like Vaseline. I was talking to a friend about this the other day, and oh, that's why it's petroleum jelly. Like, yeah, that's exactly right. it. Because it comes yeah. from, from petroleum. And then obviously things like plastics, which is where we've tended to, to have more of an interest in in their work. Mm-hmm. So there's a new plant in Belgium, I think it is, 3 billion euros worth of capital investment there. And you've been in the courts trying to um, stop this plant or change it in some way. Explain what's going on there. Yeah. So plastics is um, it's really interesting. It's became very conscious in people's minds a few years ago, I think. And you say plastics and people think turtles and beaches and uh, yeah. plastic straws and those kinds of things. But we see it as a much wider issue than that. And there's a, obviously a negative impact on, on human health sometimes, on the environment, and also on, on climate change. 
and we are creating huge amounts of, of plastic waste. I saw an interesting stat the other day, it was from 2020, that if you laid down all of the plastic waste from 2020, you could build a 30 foot wide road to the moon. I mean, we're creating just enormous amounts of, of plastic. But it, the process itself obviously involves extracting fossil fuels, converting them into plastic is really highly carbon intensive. Um, and then plastic patch packaging itself, which is often single use, ends up as as waste. And there are there are harmful chemicals in a lot of plastics. So mm. something like 10,000 chemicals that, that appear within the range of plastics and about a quarter of those are, are dangerous to, to human health. So we've been approaching, as you said, this, this plant that's planned in, in Belgium, in Antwerp. It's actually sitting alongside an existing plant. So there's already one there in, in Antwerp. And we've been engaged in legal action against this project. We're doing it alongside 13 other organizations, largely local groups based around the plant. So a lot of community, community groups and, and local environmental groups. Basically, we don't want the project to go ahead. I don't think that's probably a huge surprise. Um, right. the, it's building basically one of the biggest plastics plants in Europe for about 30 years. He said it's 3 billion uh, euros worth of investment. And it's essentially a, a factory that transforms ethane into ethylene. And so it doesn't actually make the plastics. It makes right. the kind of feedstock for the existing plant of plastics. And, and what happens is they create these little things called nurdles, um, which is a word that always sticks in my mind, but they're basically tiny little plastic pellets okay, and that's yeah. the feedstock for all, for all plastics. And interestingly, although I said, it's not just about environmental issues, there's a health angle to this. You quite often see these nurdles washed up on the beaches and in the, the local rivers and protected nature areas around the plants. So there's an issue in terms of the the local impact. And basically what we're saying is that Enios isn't being completely candid about the full extent of the impact of this project. So mm. they need permission from the local authorities to proceed with this plant. They make submissions and say, this is going to be the impact. This is how it will harm the climate. This is how it will harm the environment. This is how it will impact on human health. And, and our view looking at that is it's, it's not anywhere near the full extent of the actual impact. So we're challenging that. And the legal challenge is actually against the Flemish authorities. So it's important to note we're not taking specific action against the company. It's okay. against the, the project that the company's involved in. So um, the authorities have said okay to the project based on certain information that's submitted by the company. And you've said, no, we don't think that's right. And we're going to challenge that in the court. Yeah, so it's actually, it's it's an ongoing process. It's been quite a protracted process at this point. So there was an initial application. Yeah. We challenged that. The court said, actually, we think you might have a point here. Then INEOS have gone back and looked at it and resubmitted permits. And we're now waiting for the latest hearing. So I think we launched this about three or four years ago, and it's been ongoing since then. So we're just waiting for the next phase, which will be another hearing in the local courts. Okay, and and Ineos is sort of global reach because they're a, they're a huge company, as you say, sort of sixty five billion euros worth of revenue. But that's that's not in one plant; it's spread across the world. So, mm. where where are they most active, and how does that matter for you as an organisation in terms of taking on this this giant or corporation? Yeah, so they're they're active in around thirty countries. They are in the UK, up in Scotland, um, a number of plants across across Europe. And I think it's worth saying we're not 
taking on Ineos per se. We're challenging sure. them over yeah. this plot, right? So we're yeah. not making a judgment on their right to exist or anything like that. It's really about challenging this specific plant. Having said that, there are concerns about some of the, the way that other plants have operated and there have been leaks and, and environmental damage that's pretty well documented across a number of their different sites, particularly in Europe, actually. Okay, and, and that kind of brings us to the intersection with sport because you, you mentioned greenwashing earlier and uh, and the accusation around INEAS's involvement in sport is that it's, a, it's an exercise in, in greenwashing. It's like, look over here at the shiny F1 car or the cycling team or I don't have a rugby team as well. I can't remember. Yeah, it's quite, it's quite a bit. Right, and not a and not a the company and what we produce and our environmental record. I mean, so let's let's start start with that. What do they do there, and and what's your opinion on greenwashing? Because we've we've talked about sport washing from states mm. on this this podcast a lot, and people are becoming more educated about what that is really mm. and the nuances around that. And and I think we'd come to the conclusion that it's not really it's not really full enough as a term because actually it's not. When when we come to states, it's not just about the reputational aspect. It's about yeah. soft power and hard power and control over institutions. What I mean, what does it mean from a sort of environmental perspective and why are INEOS, do you think, involved in sport in this way? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good question. I think going back to what I was saying about greenwashing, it's trying to present yourself as more climate friendly or sustainable than, than you actually are. I think it's really interesting when you get to, to INEOS and you named quite a few of the the various sports ventures that they're involved in. They've also got football and uh, Elliot Kipchoge sub two hour marathon. So, you know, it's quite hard when you look at a company like INEOS to, to not ask the question, why are they doing that? Right? So it's a petrochemicals company. It doesn't really have any consumer facing brand apart from right. a of bits of soap. So the question comes back to why, why are they doing that? And we do see this in other parts of the um, fossil fuel industry. For instance, you've got Aramco, which was formerly Saudi Aramco, the state owned company for, yeah. for Saudi Arabia, sponsoring the T20 Cricket World Cup. You've got Shell sponsoring British Cycling, which um, yeah. raised a few eyebrows, I think it's fair to say, and Gazprom um, sponsoring skiing, which is increasingly odd given the a lot of the competitions now can't run because of, of climate change. Right. Um, so you kind of, you, again, you're sort of left with this question of why are they doing it? And the comparison that's often drawn with fossil fuel companies is actually with tobacco companies in the past, and they yes. were heavily involved in in sports sponsorship and certainly after the point where it was clearly acknowledged that their products were killing people basically and and they were still allowed to continue advertising and and it was clear to them as businesses and i think it's fairly well documented that they needed the permission of society and the support of society to be able to carry on in their business it's what mm. we call in technical terms the the social license to operate like can you Got continue it, yeah. working in society Obviously, one of the ways that the tobacco industry did that is that they attached themselves to sporting events, to sporting teams that, that people love. I think the really odd thing when I make that comparison is that they at least could make the argument that they would be able to sell some products to the consumers they're advertising to. Again, when you come back to Ineos, they don't really have products to sell to people. So you look at that really high profile list of sporting names and events and teams, and you just ask, why are they doing it if it's not mm. for for improving their their reputation? So it's a kind of 
It's a really interesting intersection between sports washing and greenwashing because they're not doing it and saying, okay, by doing this, we are a green and sustainable company, but there's an association that comes with, with being involved yeah. in those events. And it kind of goes back to where we started. Like a lot of people will not know what Ineos does. All they'll know is that they've seen Elliot Kipchoge coming over the, the line in, in however many seconds under two hours with his Ineos shirt and all of his Ineos yeah. paces behind him. They're like, oh, Ineos, that's a good name. And so, again, I can't say exactly why they're doing it, but it's quite interesting intellectually to ask the question, why are they doing it, really? Yeah. By the way, Kipchoge doing under two hours. If anyone's ever tried to run that fast, even for a couple of minutes, I, I challenge you to do it. It's incredibly yeah. fast. <laughs> well, and I, I'm, I'm actually a runner myself, and I, yeah, I, I think I could probably do it for 20 seconds, maybe. Yeah. So sustaining yeah, it for yeah. two hours is a phenomenal feat. I have to say it was really interesting for me as as someone who thinks Eli Kipchoge is just an incredible human being. If you ever hear him speak, he's thoughtful, he's articulate, he's gentle and kind. It actually felt quite jarring to see see him running across the line with, with Ineos on it. And again, mm. this is like a personal vendetta, but you have this sense of why, why is this company involving itself in that kind of event? Again, I can't yeah. say why, but you have to ask the question. No, and I think it's a fair question. I mean, there's that old saying, how do you make a small fortune in football? Start with a big one. Yeah. And there's just, there's there's no money to be made there, really. I mean, it, it's interesting that the private equity, especially American private equity now is invested in uh, dozens and dozens of cr- different private equity funds, but dozens of cr- uh, clubs across Europe. So clearly there's a belief in the market more generally that there's an upside to football, but historically that's not true. And, and it's especially not true in Manchester United, which is mm. effectively a value-destroying organization and United's share price will reflect that somewhat. So for Ineos, buying a company a hundred times smaller, nearly a hundred times smaller in revenue terms, doesn't seem to make any financial sense. No. I I guess you could say it might be about Sir Jim's personal legacy, Um, but he's not the only shareholder at Ineos. So I'm kind of interested in sort of diving into like, yeah, what does that mean? And why would a company like this do it? And I think it's 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 an interesting point, like the the uh, the coming together and the sort of lack of clarity about who is the bid. Is it Sir Jim Ratcliffe or is it Ineos? And and I was quite interested when I saw the original press releases because it was issued by Ineos. Yeah, and everyone sort of refers to it as the Sir Jim Ratcliffe, and there's this kind of interesting confluence there. I do, you know, I, again wonder. You look at the list of of sporting assets, if you want to call them that, and he was quite interested also in buying Chelsea. Um, yeah. So you do wonder, is it about getting a Premier League club? Because he was also a Chelsea fan at one point, I understand, in the season ticket. Well, he had a Chelsea yeah. season ticket holder. This doesn't go well, down well with the United supporters. Yeah, sorry, I shouldn't be for, saying this, should I? For sure. No, no, it's okay. I mean, it's. I think it's fair to interrogate all aspects of this particular bid. Yeah, I, I don't know whether that was for, like, you know, big corporate, you take people to yeah. uh, sporting events and stuff like that. I mean, I, I personally have been to several events like that with big corporate sponsoring stuff. So maybe it's that. Maybe he just loves Chelsea and we've got it all wrong. And uh, local boy from uh, Manchester, Dun Goods, has become a Chelsea fan, which would be a deep shame. But anyway, yeah. It, yeah, I mean, it's you're right. It's, there has been a sort of a lot of... It's very opaque. I mean, yeah. but it has come from Ineos and that is the bid and that, that is the that will be the purchasing entity rather than Sir Jim Ratcliffe. And he's a 30% shareholder or something mm. like that. It's actually very hard to work out because of this, as you mentioned, 30 com- companies and across all these 
countries and there's different shareholdings in each of them as well as the group holding company so i can i i have some MA skills so i can dig into some of that but even for me it's it's actually fairly bewildering and and of course much like manchester united you don't have to report it all in detail so if you're a private company but i mean it is interesting because he can't make the decision on his own so his uh, his co-founders kind of basically have to say yes to this too and we haven't heard anything from them either yeah so yeah again that it's as you say it's an interesting one with it being the company that then again leads you to the question why would a company invest so heavily in in these sports assets and i, I have heard it said always it's an ego trip for for sir jim but as you say he's not he's not the company itself although he owns a big chunk of it so yeah. if you're looking at an investment in, in your company or a com- an investment your company's making you want to understand why that's happening and what you expect the return to be, either in financial terms or, or reputational. Yeah, yeah. And like, how how is the how has the reaction been to Ineos's other sporting ventures? I mean, do do you see it as having had a positive, beneficial impact on their reputation, access, link, soft power, access into the EU, or whatever the motivations might be? So they own a club in Lausanne in Switzerland, yeah. EC Nice. As you said, cycling team, I think they sponsor, they sponsor an F1 team or maybe more than one F1 team. Is it, yeah. is it the McLaren team? I forget now. It's Mercedes, I think. Mercedes, Mercedes, yeah. right. And uh, on the front of the shirt in the rugby. Yeah. So, yeah, quite a few tentacles. Have you, have you seen this have an impact on, on how people understand or think about the company? I mean, only anecdotally, I think, again, it sort of comes back to nobody knows who Ineos are and what they do. And there's a reason why any company, and this is not just Ineos, chooses yeah. to associate itself with with anything, right? With a, a cultural event or a sporting event, because it enhances the reputation, because you're you're associating yourself, you're putting your name next to phenomenal sporting achievements or to sporting stars who who people love. And and so I think it's quite hard to say it hasn't been quite successful for them, honestly. And if if all people remember about a, a company that's making loads of plastic and based out of fossil fuels is that they're doing loads of good things to to support sports clubs and to to support people like Elliot Kipchoge going under two hours in a marathon. That's a pretty good result if, if you're in EOS. So I can't give you a scientific view, but it, if you were looking at it in purely reputational terms, I don't know what, it, what it's cost them, but you can see that there's clearly a, a boost from it. Because again, otherwise, why would they carry on doing it it just wouldn't really make any any sense mm. and i think again that there, there's some other projects around that are quite interesting i don't know if you've seen the the grenadier which is the right sort of follow-up to the the land rover um defender yes. which again feels like a quite british institution that is being saved if i yeah. was really cynical you might say again there's a there's a sort of other benefit to doing that i think they're losing a lot of money on it and equally starting to go into things like consumer soaps and so advertising that quite heavily much more so than you would expect from a fairly small soap brand so that's mm-hmm. quite interesting although we have seen they had a sponsorship deal with a cinema chain which they then pulled out of because they said they didn't want to be associated with with Ineos in the end so hmm. there's some some interesting things happening um how successful they are I say it's hard to know but it's certainly building associations with cultural institutions and mm. with sporting events and teams. So in that sense, if that's what people remember, then that's got to be a positive thing for Ineos. 
Yeah, it, it's interesting. I mean, there's, uh, of course, people say keep the politics out of sport. In fact, Gianni Infantino has said that repeatedly while sitting next to politicians, which is uh, kind of yeah. a really inter- interesting sort of jarring confluence of, of things going on. But for states, we, we know from great reporting that states have been heavily involved with politicians in Britain to get yep. their way on what they want with, with football clubs. So the Saudis lobbied the UK government and the UK government put pressure on the Premier League to clear that deal. And and so it's, it's, it's really clear from that that it works both ways. And the Premier League is, and has been said, one of the UK's best exports. So mm. it's, it's a cultural event that's exported around the world, is wildly popular and, and very, very successful for a small, I mean, and football is small, a small business mm. in, in global terms, but it, it kind of gives something else and extra and, and access in a way that you wouldn't otherwise get it. And I think that has to be, that has to be true because it's more than just the, or states getting involved in football, it's more than just the sports washing aspect, mm. it's more than the reputational thing. And I think, in fact, even with Qatar, we saw that had the opposite effect that people started to dig into the human rights and, and in a way that might not have happened without the World Cup or without ownership of Paris Saint-Germain. Mm. But there's something else. They get access to institutions and, in fact, can take them over. And I wonder whether Ineos and Sir Jim also have that on their minds. I mean, I'm going to say he probably has quite good access to UK politicians anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah, when just, you're, he's not struggling there, if I'm... I, I, suspect, I suspect if he wanted a meeting with Rishi Sunak, he could probably get it. Um, yeah, but but the the power of football and the emotional power of football in the Premier League is just something extra, and and clearly we've seen governments have taken a keen interest in that as well. Yeah, absolutely, and I think if you look at the the scale of the Premier League and the reach that it has, it's it's adored in many 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 parts of the world. So to associate yourself with that, whether you're a, a country or whether you're a company, comes with huge huge benefits. And I, I'm less up on the the states side of things, but it, it's interesting watching it play out. And you've got different countries from the Middle East now owning different football clubs in in the UK. In what almost looks like sort of geopolitics playing out on a Saturday afternoon, in some ways. And I've certainly uh, suggested that well, they've got a team, so we want a team. And yep. so it's it's odd, and I think it's quite sad, really, if I'm honest. Like. And it's it's not good to be in a position that the football club you you love you kind of stuck between a, a company that maybe isn't great and between a state who also comes with its own baggage. And I, I guess yeah. it talks a lot to the the size of wealth that you need and the disposable wealth, or at least the amount of money that you can afford yeah. to invest in something. There's not that many companies, people. There's a few states who can afford to do that. So it kind of leaves right, you limited yeah. options, right? Yes, and, and in United's case, it was a rogues gallery of very poor options, I have to say. I mean, the Glazers who you know, are not wealthy in, you know, I mean, they're very wealthy. They're extremely wealthy, but they're not wealthy enough to own Manchester United anymore, really. Yeah. They can't pump any capital in themselves. And I think they've come to that conclusion. They wouldn't say it, of course, mm. but I think I think that's true. But everyone else, so Ineos, uh, we've talked about, Qatari bid, which is fronted by an individual, but it's clearly a state bid. Carlisle Group, Elliott, private equity firms, a few others were mooted. Yeah, none, none of this is good per se, 
if you were to take a, if you wanted the perfect benevolent dictator of an owner who had a perfect record in human rights and business. I mean, unfortunately, they didn't step forward. And while I searched hard, yeah, I could not find six billion dollars down the back of my sofa. So, well, and and uh, to be honest, you quite often don't end up with that level of wealth without some history behind it, right? I mean, that's that's again one of the big challenges of finding anybody to buy a club. Um, if you want to get rid of the debt, if you want to be able to buy it outright. Uh, yeah, yeah it's, it doesn't leave in a great situation. I'm, I'm interested in the kind of community because um, you've talked about community in terms of the people you work with in, in some of the mm. lawsuits, and, and that really does matter. And we, we saw in this with the Super League attempt at, at building the Super League that the community of football fans pushing back really made a big difference. Mm. And we've seen recently that Germany, German football clubs rejected private equity investment, not entirely, but largely because football club supporters push back and they have the power to do that in Germany mm. with the 50 plus one rule. And where I now live in Seattle, it's, uh, it's sponsored by Providence, a healthcare company. Um, and Sounders fans have been pushing back against that because they have, you could say they've taken a, a, a stance on abortion rights that is not um, in keeping with the um, the the local fans wishes so i mean and and i had a beat i was there at the weekend i'm not a sanders fan i just happened to be there decompressing after the cup final and the big banner was rolled out saying you promised change mm-hmm. um and and so i just say that as an anecdote really to say that community fans matter and fans can push back and i think there's a kind of interesting fatalism in this process saying well what can we do yeah um, and i also think some people unfairly think football fans don't think about anything else other than football. And and there oh, is a truth, right? right? That for the 90 minutes on a Saturday afternoon, you actually don't want to think about human rights or environmental issues. You actually, you just focused on your team winning. Yeah. But outside of that, people do think about it. And I think a lot of this came out around the World Cup, actually. And I was chatting with quite a few Orange fans who nearly always go to the World Cup or to the Euros. And they say, we're not going because I'm, I don't want to be there. I don't want to be part of it. So I think there can be almost this sort of view that football fans are Neanderthals who just drink Stella and don't really care about anything else. And it's it's not true. And I think it's worth giving a bit more respect sometimes to football fans and the fact that they do think about things other than other than football. Although, as I say, perhaps not for those 90 minutes on a Saturday afternoon. Yeah, very true. And yes, we do just want to enjoy the football sometimes. And I don't want to be talking about this rogues gallery of uh, yeah, abusive states, which is very much true in in the case of Qatar, sadly, or polluting or petrochemicals companies with uh, very dodgy environmental records. Yeah, it, it would be. Not, I, I don't even actually want to think about the owners. No, uh, I've got. I've bored myself talking about leverage and debt <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, for the last eighteen years. I, I can um, tell you, it makes a difference having really good owners, and I can attest yeah. to this because we have two fantastic owners at Leighton Orient, a guy called Kent Teague, who's actually a Texan, and somebody right. called Nigel Travers, who's a lifelong Orient fan, but is now in the US. I think he's chair of Dunkin' Donuts, actually. Okay. Um, wow, he, that is a mix, isn't it? Yeah, and he's put mm. together a consortium, but they're, they're so good. And Kent, who's a, a new football fan if I'm honest he'd say that himself but he he travels to away games when he's in the UK and he was he was in the away end against Solly Moores in the National League I mean he's yeah. a wealthy guy but he really understands how much it means to the fans and he wants to yeah. be part of that and it just changes the atmosphere completely I have to say 
as you say, you don't want to think about it, but it's nice when you can think about it positively. Right. Everyone pushing in the same direction. And and look, the history of Manchester United has really been that. Mm. Uh, I mean, it was founded as a club by the Union of Railway Workers, as Newton Heath. And, and, and I often think about that beginning from community. And, and many football clubs in the UK were born of those community schools, churches, unions. And it, it's very interesting history there. But Manchester United then became owned, privately owned by local businessmen done good. Eventually, mm-hmm. the Edwards family, which who I think they made sausages and other meat products, not perfect. Fans mm-hmm. protested against them; they weren't happy with with the Edwards family, and and uh, and eventually the Glazers, who who made their wealth in canning fish and and protein products. Right. It's <laughs> so it's like ownership really does matter, and you'd you'd like it to be a perfect owner. If not a perfect owner, you just want someone competent who mm-hmm. doesn't who's not awful. Yeah. Um. And that's been a challenge as part of this process because there's there's definitely some question marks over all of the bidders, including Ineos, who we're talking about today. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's it's a challenge to look around, particularly the Premiership, but all levels of football, and, and point at really good owners who have mm-hmm. a good relationship with the fans and who, as you say, everybody's aligned because that makes such a huge difference. You know, you hear managers talk about it as well. The difficulty of trying to manage somewhere where you don't have the understanding, the support, the backing of the ownership. I mean, it's nearly impossible. Yeah, correct. All right. Well, I'd say good luck, but it'd be interesting watching your, your current case in Belgium against the local authorities, but about the Ineos plant. And we'll see where we go with the takeover. It seems to be nearing an end game, but then again, we've seen, we've said that for months now. The, the final, 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 final bid was put in this week, I think. Maybe, um, and it may come to a conclusion. But uh, I really appreciate your thoughts on Ineos and what they do, and um, and uh, their involvement in sport. It's a pleasure, and uh, I should wish you good luck, and and all the Man U fans who are who are watching this. I hope you get some finality fairly soon. It feels like it's been dragging on a long time. Uh, it really has, uh, and I'd like to just talk about football again. Thanks, <laughs> yeah, Chris. Really appreciate it. Thanks, okay. Great. Thanks very much. Take care.